There's an unholy trinity. Power, politics, and pride. It makes for a wicked combination. Not because power and politics are evil in themselves, but because when fused with pride, the result is not only harmful to people, but also to the leaders as well. Let's stand as we look at our passage in Acts chapter 12. For those of you that are new uh, this morning, we have been looking at the entire book of Acts. We go, are going through verse by verse. We've been dealing with chapter 12, where God has helped Peter escape from prison. He was condemned there by Herod, and Herod was going to execute him. And God miraculously had him escape by an angel who allowed the shackles to come off. He finds a home uh, to where he can hide in, and then we read this. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Our passage says in verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Whatever the cause, apparently Herod applied some sort of economic embargo upon Tyre and Sidon. And even though these two towns were port cities, apparently they depended on foods from Judea and the area in which uh, Herod was governing. And Herod discontinued the flow of this food to Tyre and Sidon. So a delegation was made up of these two cities, and they were to come before Blastus, who was the king's chamberlain. And most commentators believe that Tyre and Sidon probably used a little payola to make it a little more appealing for Blastus to go to Herod and to gain a hearing. Now, the role of a chamberlain was to manage the household of that royal person. And in this case, that would mean manage the finances and also manage the concubines for Herod. The point is, is that this person was somebody that a royal person would trust to take care of his or her affairs. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, the record of this event is not only given in Acts, which was written by Luke, who was a medical doctor and very detailed in, in, in how he wrote, but it was also noted by the Jewish historian Josephus. And he wrote of this event in his work, The Antiquities of the Jews. He noted that this took place in 44 AD. And Josephus adds that 
this gathering together of, uh, of Herod and these people was for a festival in Caesarea, uh, and it was a festival honoring Claudius Caesar. Apparently, Herod had given a favorable response to Tyre and Sidon, and is now using this occasion to soak in their flattery by displaying his authority and his self-proclaimed glory. Josephus wrote that Herod wore a, a lavish silver outfit that was splendidly sewn with fabric that just shimmered in the sunlight. The people were in awe. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that Herod said in his speech, but it'd be fair to assume that he wanted to impress people and he wanted to inflate his own importance. They told him that he was a god, and he loved every minute of that. Now, let us know that Herod was certainly at fault for soaking this in and for not stopping the people from saying this. But fault also lies with the people for being taken in by such a situation. When people are desperate, will they not fall for anyone who will tell them what they want to hear? They will. I'm thankful for people of faith that involve themselves in the political arena. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for the temptations that are certainly great and the the discouragement that can come and set in. I'm thankful that we live in a democracy where we can can participate, and I would encourage us all to do so, whatever to our ability. However, we cannot allow the allure of politics to cause us to fall in love with power. And unfortunately, I think the church has a, a speckled history along these lines. We cannot think that our mission is to Christianize the United States, to get the populace just to follow our ways. One prominent spiritual leader insisted this, and I quote, the only way to have a genuine spiritual revival is to have legislative reform. Could he have possibly gotten this backwards? T.S. Eliot cautioned, to justify Christianity because it provides a foundation for morality instead of showing the necessity of Christian morality from the truth of Christianity is a dangerous inversion. C.S. Lewis shocked many people in his day when he came out in favor of allowing divorce on the grounds that we Christians have no right to impose our morality on society at large. And although he opposed divorce on moral grounds, he maintained the distinction between morality and legality. Moralism, apart from grace, will be overbearing. And moralism, apart from the gospel, is forced submission. The late Kurt Vonnegut, the satirical American author, wrote this, For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. That's a fair criticism. With singular focus, Billy Graham understood that his life was all about the gospel. And when visiting Russia, he was criticized for not speaking about the human rights violations. People wanted him to speak more like a prophet. 
One of his critics said, Dr. Graham, you have set the church back 50 years. Graham lowered his head and replied, I am deeply ashamed. I've been trying very hard to set the church back 2,000 years. I believe we should start our political views with the understanding that all people are made in the image of God and that we reserve our ultimate allegiance to God and the gospel. The Greek text says in verse 22 that the people were shouting. It's a tense that means continuous action. It it could read like this. They shouted and kept on shouting. He's like a God. He's like a God. Speaks like a God. Isn't it easy for us to believe our flatterers? When you're in a position of leadership, you often hear these people. There's nothing wrong with genuine compliments. But flattery is a compliment that's not deserved. Most leaders are wise to hear the maxim, to heed the maxim, that you're not as good as your flatterers and you're not as bad as your worst critics. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. Flattery is this undeserved praise. In the case of Herod, there was no objective reason to believe that he was a god, right? (laughs) Except that's what the people said to him because they could get what they wanted. How interesting, Josephus notes that after Herod's departure was reviled, statues of his family were torn down and and his daughters were forced into brothels. Not like a god anymore. You can be sure of one thing about flattery, it is short-lived, right? I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln's remark at the burial of one of his generals and hearing all the glowing reports of the man's life. Lincoln was well aware this man enjoyed his own praise. Lincoln said, if I had known he'd get a funeral like this, he'd have died much sooner. (laughs) It's a temptation, not only in death, but throughout life, that we think that we are a gift to God instead of remembering that life is a gift to us. Verse 22 says, the people shouted, the voice of a God, not of a man. Herod, in fact, did wield power, but it was not a moral power that he had, not a moral authority. He does not reportedly have great intellectual force or lofty character. He was not particularly kind or loving to others, but he was one who allowed his vanity to swell There's a similar case in Acts 14 where people worshipped men. Paul and Barnabas were at Lystra, and they had healed a man who was crippled at birth. And the people said, the gods have come, come down to us in the likeness of men. How did Paul and Barnabas respond to that? They quickly refuted what these people said, turned the attention towards God. But true to form, those exact same crowds later stoned Paul. (laughs) He's a god, and now he's getting stoned. Be wary of those who flatter. Be wary of those who give their undying loyalty for seemingly no reason. They pledge their allegiance to you. But then when their power is lessened, 
or where their agendas are not followed, you will likely make an enemy of those who claim to be your best friend. There's a warning for us about the truth of this passage. It's reflected in Isaiah 42.8. It says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And here's how God applied that truth to Acts 12. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's quite dramatic. But we don't have any record of an angel being visible, but somehow, by revelation, Luke knew that an angel was involved in this. An angel was an instrument of God's justice. How interesting that in the same chapter, we had an angel delivering a saint, and we had an angel slaying a king. I mean, instead of Peter being killed by Herod, it was Herod who was killed by Peter's God. Josephus wrote this. They hastened, therefore, to convey to the palace, and the word flashed about to everyone that he was on the verge of death. Straightway the populace, including the men and children, sat in sackcloth in accordance with their ancestral custom and made entreaty to God on behalf of the king. The sound of wailing and lamentations prevailed everywhere. The king, as he lay in his lofty bedchamber and and looked on the people as they fell prostrate, was not dry-eyed himself. Exhausted after five straight days by the pain in his abdomen, he departed this life in his 54th year of his life and the seventh year of his reign. Instead of doing what Paul and Barnabas did and recognizing the one true God, Herod was soaking up all of the flattery for himself, certainly guilty of arrogance and pride and sacrilege. What's interesting is there's actually a history, you know, because Tyre and Sidon came together here and wanted to approach the king, and there's a history of Tyre not worshiping the true God and how ironic that God had addressed the king 600 years ago Ethbel III, and said this, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. And then later in verse 10 of Ezekiel 28, you shall die in the death of uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now you might be tempted to think, well, you know, That was the way God dealt with people in the Old Testament. I mean, if you want to believe that, people will say that, right? But wait a minute. The worm story is in the New Testament. That's New Testament. And if you think that God has somehow changed his attitude about the proud, listen to this. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever he sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, it seems that there is a a moral order that God has put in place, that when you defy God, there is a price to pay, and God will see to it. It won't always be worms, but somehow there will be a price to pay, whether in this life or the next. 1 John 2.16 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
I mean, doesn't God have a way of just chopping us down, realizing it's not about us? Doesn't he? I mean, just even this morning on my way to church, I'm looking out, I'm, I'm on my way. There are spots all over my pants. And I'm thinking, how did I not see that? <laughs> had my daughter bring me another set of pants. <laughs> and, and then I get here and I realize I misspelled a word on the outline that's on the smartphone. And those are the kinds of things for a guy who's OCD, just drives me crazy. And I just had to, I, I had to calm down and I say, it, it gets really bad. There was a piece of scotch tape up on that wall a couple weeks ago. I had to get, on, get up on the ladder 10 minutes before the service to take it down because it bugged me so much. That's how bad it is, right? You can't worship with tape up on that wall. <laughs> People know that. But God has a way of allowing those things to go on, just reminding me, hey, short, this is not about you. I'm going to do a work through you. Just relax, be filled with the Spirit, depend upon me. There's something to that. God has not changed the moral order of the universe. He's still God. He still hates pride. And the proud will not escape the hand of God. However he chooses to deal with it. This week I read of a church that once was the largest church in America. I've been there a couple times. But recently they had their founding pastor... And then two co-pastors that followed him and their entire elder board resigned. The reason, according to one of their elders, was that they were blinded by their faith in the founding pastor, failed to hold him accountable, and this clouded their judgment. They did not believe the numerous claims of the women who said that they were sexually harassed and abused by the pastor. I mean, when people are in positions of power, including church staff and elders, there's a great temptation to not look objectively at anything that threatens that power. The one elder went on to say, our entire elder board has had to come to grips with the areas of our hearts, minds, and souls that blinded us to the pain and suffering of the women and their advocates. And they talked about the pride that was involved in that. I mean, when we fail to see the pain in others, when we fail to empathize and listen, it's a sign that our hearts are not in a good place. I think that's why it's important for all leaders to minister to the least of these as often as possible, and not to think about just enjoying the the perks of authority or power in any position, in any social setting. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I like what John Stott said. He said, this passage opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. That's awesome. I mean, that is awesome. And despite the attacks upon the church, and I'm not going to try to take a martyr complex here in America, although I think there's pressure, but certainly in other countries, people are losing their life. More people are being killed for their faith in Christ today than in any other time in the history of the world. So don't say it's not happening. But despite the attacks, 
the word of God continues to spread. And in the worst areas, the blood of the martyr James was the seed of the church. It saw great gospel expansion. God can move to have us escape from the trial, or he can give us the power to endure in the middle of a trial. We often forget this. Most of us, and I'm the same, we pray for the escape. Lord, I don't want to go through this. I can't have this. This is too much. I get it. We've all said it. We all pray for the escape. But I would just remind you of this, that another way that God moves is to give you the endurance to go through the trial because that can be just as miraculous when you continue to show the love and grace and obedience in the midst of the trial. God may not bring that spouse back. You may not get all the money you think you need, but can you look to God in the midst of that and still experience joy and still trust him? That's the crux of it. And that is, that is just as miraculous as being delivered from the trial. 1 Peter 1 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's why you have guys that that were singing in prison in the book of Acts. His word will continue to march on. The gospel cannot be stopped. But God also helps people escape, right? Abraham chosen of God to father a great nation, had, had four eastern kings delivered, defeated by the hand of God. I mean, when escape seemed impossible, Moses and the fleeing Israelites were miraculously rescued from the armies of Pharaoh. In the days of Hezekiah, all Jerusalem seemed doomed to destruction by the hordes of Sennacherib. But the Lord sent an angel, and the passage in 2 Kings says that that angel slew 185,000 soldiers in one night. The psalmist says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, laughs, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Isaiah says they are just but a drop in the buckets. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. We'll talk more about John Mark later. And Luke gives us what may seem like some insignificant detail, but actually it ties together chapters 12 and 13. Barnabas and Saul went to Jerusalem to deliver a gift to help the church there with a famine. 
we read about that if you want to read about it at the end of chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. There's actually two years that transpire between the, the death of Herod and Paul and, and Barnabas turning to Antioch. I think what I see in this is that they, they continued to labor, they continued to work. They didn't let all of this persecution that was going on to get in their way. The work must go on. There are things that might, that might threaten us and discourage us, but they stayed on track. And God's people can accomplish a whole lot by remembering their mission, by remembering what God has called them to do. I, I leave you with the words of Oswald Chambers. I love Chambers. I think he speaks to this idea of God does not allow us to escape, but has us go through the trial. Sometimes we don't choose that way. But just listen to this. God can never make me whine if I object to the fingers he uses to crush me. If God would only crush me with his own fingers and say, now, my son, I'm going to make you broken bread and poured out wine in a particular way, and everyone will know what I'm doing. But when he uses someone who's not a Christian or someone I particularly dislike or some set of circumstances, circumstances which I said I would never submit to and begins to make these the crushers, I object. I must never choose the scene of my own martyrdom. Nor must I choose the things God will use in order to make me broken bread and poured out wine. His own son did not choose. God chose for his son that he should have a devil in his company for three years. We say, I want angels. I want people better than myself. I want everything to be significantly from God. Otherwise, I cannot live the life or do the thing properly. I always want to be guilt-edged, G-I-L-T. Let God do as he likes. If you're ever going to be wine to drink, you must be crushed. Grapes cannot be drunk. Grapes are only wine when they've been crushed. I wonder what kind of coarse finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you. And you've been like a marble and escaped. You are not ripe yet. And if God had squeezed you, the wine that came out would have been remarkably bitter. Let God go on with his crushing because it will work his purpose in the end. End quote. Let's pray.